the BioWorld Insider Podcast. This is the BioWorld Insider Podcast, and I'm Lynn Yaffe, BioWorld's publisher. In an industry always driving to speed drug discovery, clinical development, and commercial success, government regulation can sometimes seem staid and slow-moving by comparison. But even a brief look at regulatory highlights from 2021 shows nothing could be further from the truth. From COVID-19 and cancer to FDA advisory committees, so much has changed. Leadership changes and retirements at the FDA created new questions about what priorities might prevail in the U.S. next year. And what about post-Brexit UK and the push for innovation by China's top regulatory agency? We've asked Peter Pitts to help us put it all into perspective. He's the president of the Center for Medicine in the Public Interest. He's a former member of the United States Senior Executive Service and was FDA's Associate Commissioner for External Relations. He's now a visiting professor at the University of Paris School of Medicine. Today, he's joined by Bauer World Managing Editor, Michael Fitzhugh. Over to you, Michael. Thanks, Lynn, and it's great to have you here, Peter. How are you? Oh, my pleasure. Hi, Michael. It's going to be a good conversation. Yeah, I'm excited. So I want to start big picture. If you had to describe the general tenor of the U.S. regulatory landscape in 2021 in a word or two, and which is challenging, I know, to so take as long as you want, but like in a word or two, what would you pick? Well, I think the word of the day is gamish. You know, there's a lot going. There's a lot going on. Uh, everything is in flux. Uh, people are paying attention. I think that maybe that's the biggest difference between now and uh, 18 months ago is that people realize that regulatory issues really have uh, profound impact on moving healthcare forward, and not just in the U.S. but around the world. Why do you think people are really getting that now in in a way that maybe they didn't before? COVID-19 has changed the way we think about a lot of things. And it's also changed what we're thinking about more regularly. And I obviously, you know, before COVID-19, the general population didn't think about the FDA. They didn't think about emergency use authorizations. They didn't know what mRNA meant. Maybe they thought it was M&Ms when they went to the movies. You know, it, it, they, did, they didn't think about supply chain issues when it comes to uh, pharmaceuticals and diagnostics. They didn't think about diagnostics at all. Uh, they assumed that uh, every diagnostic was 100% accurate and every drug was 100% safe. And we've learned a lot from that. I think that's an opportunity moving forward so that people recognize that regulatory issues aren't just some boring red tape government thing, that it also has the opportunity to expedite innovation and improve healthcare uh, because of itself rather than uh, getting in the way. So kind of FDA, for example, FDA, rather than being viewed as a, a bureaucratic roadblock to innovation, FDA is now being viewed, and I think appropriately so, as a facilitator of innovation, as a partner uh, with the industries that it regulates. So I think, you know, complicated concepts, but uh, at the end, a good conversation to have. That sort of newfound appreciation that's developed of the of the complexity, um, I think, has been accompanied by an appreciation or a greater appreciation for the personalities, the people involved. And there was a lot of change on that front at the agency this year. There's kind of a contentious path to changing the guard at the top with the eventual appointment of Robert Califf as the agency's next commissioner, turnover in the Office of Vaccines Research and Review after there was some dispute around uh, evidence for COVID-19 vaccine uh, booster shots. 
and that and you know even some struggle in terms of um, saying the agenda with the White House. Tell me a little bit about how you're viewing the leadership changes and power dynamics around the agency right now. Well, you've, you've teed up a lot of things. So let me pick the juiciest, <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> uh, which is politics. And you know, obviously, there's always been a kind of an undercurrent of, you know, is the FDA being driven by political agendas? And I guess it's important to say up front, since we're talking largely about uh, diagnostics and biologics and drugs, that uh, in those three centers, in the Centers for Devices at CBER and, and CEDAR, every single employee from the director on down to the newest uh, secretary is a career public health official. There are zero political appointees, Schedule C appointees inside uh, those centers. So when people say that uh, these are quote unquote political decisions, uh, I would have to disagree with that. I think the FDA has done a very good job maintaining its scientific integrity. The problem has been from the White House, from the Trump White House and from the Biden White House. They both made significant faux pas, in my opinion, trying to dictate what the agency says, trying to predict what the agency is going to do, with, when what they should really do is sit back and let the FDA do its job and then comment on the decisions that the FDA makes. So for example, when President Biden says that, oh, the FDA is going to do this shortly, he shouldn't be saying that because those decisions haven't been decided on yet. That's bad. And it basically, it basically says that the science is back only so far as we want it to be uh, in track with our political agenda. Clearly, you know, when President Trump stood up and, and said things uh, that were wrong, that were counterproductive, Similarly, people lose faith in the process because the guy sitting in the Oval Office is the boss and people take cues from that. I think what you've seen certainly in the Office of, of Vaccines within CBER is people being very upset uh, with the Biden White House trying to predict what the FDA is going to do and saying that publicly. Uh, that's not the way the system should work. I think that system works best when you let career government scientists do their jobs and then support those decisions. So do you think that the pandemic has diminished the agency's overall reputation or is the level of things that I'm asking about here sort of inside baseball that really only touches the perceptions of, uh, you know, of a few who are like us who are paying closer attention to it? Well, you know, all, all of a sudden, everybody is an epidemiologist, right? All of a sudden, every, everybody is a regulatory expert. You know, if, if I'm playing tennis, people want to talk to me about mRNA technology. Uh, they don't know what, they don't know anything about mRNA technology. You know, I think you know I'm all for people wanting to get engaged in the conversation, but the but the, the truth is that there are no easy answers to complex questions, and politicians hate that. You know, politicians want easy answers to complex questions that can happen quickly. You know, a lot of a lot of issues, certainly when it comes to COVID nineteen, will will be will be with us for quite a while. People say to me, "What? I thought you once you were vaccinated, you couldn't get COVID 19 Like, well, you know, I don't really think anybody said that. You know, that, that may be what you heard. It may be what you want to be true. Uh, but science is tough. And the last time most people touched science was in high school, where there was a right answer and a wrong answer, and we were dissecting frogs. You know, regulatory science has tremendous nuance and a lot of gray zones. And you really need to understand that, for example, the plural of anecdote isn't data, and that data takes time to collect and analyze. And, you know, when you look at you know, the tremendous successes of Operation Warp Speed, certainly with the bringing diagnostics and, and vaccines and therapeutics to market in, in, in amazing time through emergency use authorizations, uh, you recognize that there is a degree of flexibility in what can be done and what can't be done. 
Uh, you can bring products to market through EUAs, uh, but that doesn't mean that they're fully approved. It doesn't mean you, you can stop collecting data. People need to recognize that drugs are not 100% safe. The vaccines are not 100% effective, that there's, uh, there's a degree of understanding that needs to be had. You know, and we can't really move forward on issues like health equity, which is kind of the buzzword of the day, until we move forward on health literacy. The health literacy in this country and around the world is abysmal. And I think one of the things that we've learned is that uh, regulators need to speak in plainer English to explain to people exactly what's going on. You know, giving people equations, and certainly equations with Greek letters in them, uh, is unhelpful when it comes to educating the general public. So that outreach or education aspect is is really interesting. Tell me more about how you think that that could unfold or or an effective avenue or two on, through which it might be prosecuted because i mean you're right there is clearly a gap between the way people perceive regulators and the way that they actually operate it's really interesting well i think one of the benefits for example of the president finally nominating an fda commissioner designate and that person being rob caleb who i think is a, is a fabulous choice is that is that rob understands the value of speaking to the general public about issues rather than simply speaking to his colleagues in shorthand. Uh, that's clearly you know, something we all suffer from. You know, when we all understand these incredibly complicated, nuanced regulatory issues, we speak in code. People look at us like we're speaking a foreign language and we are. You know, I think what Rob Califf understands is that the conversation, if you want more people to be included in the conversation, uh, you have to change the way you speak and the words that you use. And sometimes like, like Einstein said, if you can't explain a complicated concept simply, you don't understand it. So I think Rob Califf gets that. I think that uh, was probably one of the strongest reasons that President Biden moved forward on his nomination. One of the other interesting aspects of um, sort of all of this nuance coming to the fore during the pandemic has also been a recognition that sometimes there are, there's discord between the FDA's advisory committees and its reviewers. Like, you know, very recently run COVID-19 vaccines again with myocarditis concerns, um, and even more notably in the eventual approval of Biogen's Alzheimer's disease therapy, Aduhelm, are we just seen reasonable people disagree or is there there's something else going on let's talk about advisor committees you know when i was at fda i was the uh, senior official in charge of advisor committee oversight and it was still a pretty esoteric event at the time you know now they're, they're televised and they're dealing with hot topics and lots of people are watching them and what they're recognizing is that uh it's neither all for or all against there are always issues that are going to be out for future discussion. That's the first issue. What, so it's a risk benefit calculation. And then the fact that advisory committees are in fact advisory, uh, that the FDA can move forward in agreement with those committees or uh, contrary to the advice of the committees and that each advisory committee is kind of de novo unto itself. You, you know, the past does not necessarily predict the future, even though the FDA generally follows uh, the advice of the advisory committees until they don't, right? And I think I think what we found, you know, certainly relative to things like uh, vaccines, is that there are open questions, and it's good to air those questions and to air them publicly. But that doesn't mean that at the end of the day, the FDA shouldn't move forward uh, in emergency situations. Certainly, to allow the use of many of these products. When it comes to Aduhelm, that's very interesting. So Aduhelm is a drug for Alzheimer's disease. It was approved through what's called an accelerated approval pathway. Uh, a lot of people inside the division that reviewed this, this product felt that the 
the risk benefit analysis wasn't uh, robust enough, that the, the signals for uh, benefit were kind of squishy. And an advisory committee voted against having the FDA uh, bring this drug to market to, to approve the application. Uh, the division, however, decided that in a therapeutic area where uh, treatments, uh, there were very few treatments, there are, it is not a well-populated therapeutic armamentarium, that this was an advance significant enough to approve. I happen to agree with that decision. A lot of people inside the FDA and outside the FDA felt this was the FDA willy-nilly approving drugs based on a biomarker of hope as opposed to hard data. You know, I think at a certain point, you need to say, listen, you know, we need a lot of programs in this area. We need more tools. Uh, if you don't allow these, these drugs and therapeutics to reach the market, people are going to stop investing in them. That's uh, the way the free market works, and that can't be allowed to happen. I'm not saying that drugs should be allowed to come to the market because you know, we don't want to uh, scare away investors, but we need to recognize that you know, when a real therapeutic signal presents itself, we have to look at it in, in new and significant ways, again, based on risk and benefit. And when it comes to Alzheimer's, I think you know, there's so many risks here that even benefits that are yet to be seen as significant, uh, we need to see, look at them and understand what that might mean for the future. So I think that you know, recognizing that regulatory science needs to advance with the times, with the technology, but also based on the therapeutic area that we're talking about is now actually something that more people are having. And that's a good thing. Tell me about regulatory science as a thing. I mean, I, I often think I apprehend what's meant, you know, I look at conferences about regulation or, you know, regulatory professionals get together and see all the titles. I'm like, oh yeah, okay. That's what, you know, the, this is a broad field, but, but, but tell us what you mean when you say regulatory science. Well, regulatory science is how the FDA does business. How does it collect data? How does it design clinical trials? How does it review the data? How does it create the label for the products so that physicians can understand how best to use them or not to use them? And I think a good example of that uh, is the evolving use of biomarkers. So rather than simply looking at, you know, did the tumor re get reduced? You know, did a patient with Alzheimer's disease have better cognitive skills? We look at things like, for example, the Alzheimer's disease, you know, amyloid plaque. You know, so when it comes to uh, Alzheimer's disease, there's a big debate about what causes the disease. And one of the major theories, and it's a theory, it's a hypothesis, is at the buildup of amyloid plaque uh, presents itself in patients with Alzheimer's disease. So if we can create products that reduce the buildup of amyloid plaque, the biomarker says that should therefore reduce uh, the advance of Alzheimer's disease for any given patient. I, I I personally believe that's true. But again, it's a hypothesis. And a lot of people have said, well, we shouldn't base it on a biomarker. We should only base it on actual clinical results. And that's very 20th century thinking. Now, the problem when it comes to science, like with many other things, is that the status quo is a harsh mistress. A lot of people inside the FDA go, look, that's not the way we do it. This is the way that we do it. I believe inside the FDA, from Rob Califf, should he get um, confirmed on down to the leadership within the divisions, People are beginning to understand that 21st century science needs to be introduced into the review, into the review system. And that's harder than it sounds because you have a lot of people inside the FDA who've been there for many years. They're very qualified and very credentialed, and they don't want to do things in different ways. So you really need change agents within senior management at the FDA to drive things forward. And I think that's actually happening.
And and do you think Caliph is, you know, should he get confirmed, just going to bring those people into the upper management that that can deliver the kind of change that you're talking about? Well, you know, this is this, you know, if Rob Caliph gets confirmed, this is Rob Caliph, you know, take two, part two. He's already been commissioner, and he was deputy commissioner as well. And I think right now, what uh, what Scott Gottlieb and Rob Caliph during his last tenure as commissioner, and um, Margaret Hamburg before Rob. And Andy and Andy, Andy von Eschenbach before that, they really began to hire people and promote people from within the agency that had a a more innovative dynamic in the way that they think. And that obviously initially presented itself uh, within the oncology divisions, which has really done amazing things. But the FDA can't just be innovative in oncology. It needs to be innovative across therapeutic areas. And I think that is starting. But when you have somebody at the top who really understands and rewards this type of thinking within the review divisions, things happen. And I think the value of having Janet Woodcock, having been acting commissioner since the end days of the Trump administration, since President Biden came into office, is she is a, is a firm believer in that and that she has the faith and trust and friendship of many of the senior leadership inside the FDA. I think a key thing about Rob Califf being commissioner and Janet Woodcock hopefully staying on you know, once, once he is confirmed, and that's at least the gossip at the moment, is that the senior leadership at the FDA, the career leadership inside the FDA, knows these people, it trusts them, so that the best way to make sure your legacy is successful while you're there and once you're gone is that the senior staff becomes inculcated with that philosophy. And I think that Rob Califf and Janet Woodcock understand that dynamic. Interesting. Interesting. I guess moving back from the leadership for a moment and maybe more down into the weeds, I want to ask also about review decisions that were delayed this year, mostly around um, you know, the inspection of foreign uh, manufacturing facilities being completed in a not so timely fashion because of uh, often because of travel restrictions and even resulting in complete response letters in some cases. Do you think that that's sort of a transitory issue um, that the agency can get a handle on in the year ahead? You know, quality is the third leg of regulation. You know, we talk a lot we talk a lot about safety and efficacy, but the real issues here are safety, efficacy, and quality. You can't uh, have any two without without the third. And quality, a huge part of quality, obviously, is uh, you know, CGNP issues and, and inspections of manufacturing facilities. This is not a unique COVID problem. I think it became more evident uh, during COVID because the FDA couldn't physically send people to plants. So that was it was it was almost a convenient excuse. But I think it's important to remember that even before COVID, when it came to foreign inspections, uh, there was a queue. Uh, even before COVID-19, the FDA recognized it would have to move to what's called risk-based inspections, which means, you know, aiming the resources that it has at those facilities that have the greatest number of questions. And that's smart. But at the end of the day, another big problem that no one really talks about is when it comes to the FDA inspecting facilities that reside on foreign soil is they can't march in and do and do surprise inspections. They have to have these inspections scheduled. Now, to my mind, telling people you're coming uh, and giving them the chance to hide things uh, isn't uh, optimal. So on the one hand, you know, those types of rules need to change. The FDA needs to negotiate a little bit harder with uh, foreign governments if they want to be in the game of manufacturing products or making API for use in the United States. It's in their, and I think it's in their interest to do so, even though the companies that reside within those countries will lobby ferociously against that. Uh, and then, of course, the, the issue is uh, 
resources. The FDA needs more people on the ground in places like India and China. And that is problematic for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is the FDA doesn't have the budget to do it. So hopefully FDA and the COVID queue, so to speak, uh, will allow for a more forward-looking conversation to address some of these problems. So looking beyond the U.S., because obviously, you know, the FDA is functioning, as you just noted in this really you know, global context where they're, they're working with other governments or working with other regulators. One of the things that I've been curious about is Brexit and you know, where the UK really stands right now with, uh, you know, on COVID, the UK's uh, MHRA has seemed really aggressive and coming out, becoming the first regulator to grant a conditional approval for Merck and Ridgeback's Molnupiravir. Uh, looking ahead, how do you think the regulatory environment over there is evolving and changing as uh, they kind of deal with a review of EU laws, overhaul of clinical trial frameworks and stuff? How, how do you think things are settling down post-Brexit? Well, I think in a post-Brexit regulatory environment, uh, the UK actually comes out ahead because it frees up the MHRA to do its job for Britain. And the MHRA is a spectacular agency. The F and the MHRA also carried a lot of the weight for EMA on some of the tougher uh, review issues. Uh, EMA is in a hard spot without uh, the, the brain power and the, uh, the human resources power of, of MHRA. Uh, so I think that certainly helps Britain in the sense that MHRA is now focusing exclusively uh, on issues you know, uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in the British Isles. Uh, I think that their decisions have been very smart. Obviously, the the biggest uh, divergence between the US FDA and MHRA over COVID has been over the AstraZeneca vaccine. And even though there are kind of national pride issues there, I think that that shows that different agencies that basically conform to the same standards can reach different decisions. I guess that's a, another sign of the the various nuances of regulatory science that people can sort of you know review and and come to different conclusions. Well, I think it goes back to something you said earlier, which is you know intelligent people can look at a problem and reach different decisions. It doesn't mean that one is right and the others are, are idiots. You know these <laughs> the, these are these are issues that uh, can sway either way based on a, a whole variety of issues. And I think that hopefully what the COVID nineteen experience has taught us is that better harmonization on issues that we can agree on, like for example, clinical trial design and data derived from those trials uh, should be more widely uh, shared and used in regulatory decisions, both to expedite review and to make the cost of R&D less expensive. So that, that's a nice double play. That harmonization element is really interesting. I see that popping up more and more in our stories as um, you know we we cover the regulatory environments across the world. How you know, especially in China, there seems to be a lot of work, a, a sort of a push to accelerate new drug development and also sort of thin out overcrowded spaces. Tell me, you know, is harmonization bringing a lot more? focus to the more sort of 21st century elements of regulatory science to, you know, the regulatory environments elsewhere outside the U.S.? There are a lot of issues when it comes to global harmonization on kind of pharmaceutical regulatory issues, not, not the least of which is uh, you need to have somebody who's politically responsible in a, a country for a decision. So, you know, people say, no, why don't we just have a global FDA where you know, there's one agency looking at everything? 
Yeah, which, which is interesting after a couple of beers, I suspect. But at the end of the day, when <laughs> things go wrong, who's responsible? And at the FDA, in the U.S., it's the FDA that is led by a appointee appointed by the president. So there's political responsibility. You know, EMA is a little bit more complicated. You have various types of decision-making processes that are continental and the others that are simultaneously national. And now, of course, you have you know, the, the UK out, out, of, out of EMA looking after itself. You know, I think maybe a step forward there is broader and more regular communications between regulatory agencies. You know, you have ICH, uh, which is a global agency. You've got WHO, which you know, it's a global agency, and within that, you've got things like the Upstream Monitoring Center on Pharmacovigilance, you know, which collects data globally, which which is which is important. But you know, how how do you have kind of regulators who are doing their jobs on a regular basis talking to each other more regularly, rather than having it kind of siloed between leadership meetings on the one hand or extraordinarily esoteric harmonization documents that take years and decades to to move forward? So I think that you know, harmonization is good, but how can we make it more of a real-time proposition. You don't think free beer is the answer? I think free beer is a start. You know, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm a big believer in incentives of all kind, not just for COVID-19 vaccinations. So tell me, it's the inevitable time of a year-end podcast where we have to take out the crystal ball. And my crystal ball is terrible. <laughs> I don't predict every prediction I've ever made in the industry seems to seems to uh, fall dead on arrival. Tell me a little bit about any read throughs from things that we've been talking about, things that have happened this year that you think might illuminate the year ahead. Well, I don't have a magic. I don't have a, uh, a crystal ball, but I do have a magic eight ball. So occasionally I I, uh, I fall back to that. But I think that and again, to a certain degree, and certainly when it comes to regulatory science, the, the past does inform the future. And I think what we've learned from COVID-19 that people get is that when everybody within the broader healthcare ecosystem works together, uh, we can accomplish amazing things more quickly. So I guess the question then becomes, what lessons from COVID-19 can we apply going forward in areas beyond COVID-19? And I think some of those lessons are the regulatory agency, FDA, MHRA, EMA, pick your agency, has to be both regulator of and colleague with industry. And that is very politically explosive. But I think that what we've learned from the past is properly controlled, it can pay tremendous dividends. I think what we've also learned from COVID-19 is that innovations in, in, in healthcare don't generally come from government funded programs. They come from uh, a combination of government funded science, you know, early academic science and you know, hardcore developmental science that's driven by uh, privately owned or public pharmaceutical companies. And I think that you know, if we can all play nicely in the sandbox together, we can accomplish tremendous things. That's the lesson from COVID-19. Hopefully we don't fall back to kind of good guys and bad guys uh, in this proposition. And, and again, a good example of that is people are beginning to realize what things like uh, user fees mean. Uh, in the past, people said to me, well, the FDA can't be trusted because they're, they're in industry's pocket. They get paid to approve drugs. Well, the truth is that they get paid to review drugs and that you don't get your Padufa fee refunded if your drug doesn't get approved. So I think people are beginning to understand kind of the actual dynamics of how drug regulation works, how biologics regulation works. And that's, that's, a, that's a positive step forward. And hopefully politicians will be smart enough to stop trying to paint the FDA as a demon to accomplish whatever political goals that might uh, solve for them. 
that's the kind of cheer I can get behind, Peter. Thank you very much for a very interesting conversation. It's been really great talking to you. My pleasure. Back at you. Stay safe. And let's make next year uh, the year for smart regulation. Peter, we really appreciate your excellent perspective on what are very complex and often politically charged regulatory processes that both challenge and guard the development of human therapeutics and vaccines. So thank you, Peter and Michael. As always, BioWorld will continue to keep you informed of all the most important scientific, clinical, and business updates in the field. That's our show for today. If you need to track the development of drugs, turn to BioWorld.com, follow us on Twitter, or email us at newsdesk at BioWorld.com. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget to subscribe. Thanks for joining us. BioWorld, published by Clarivate, is a subscription-based news service, but all of our COVID-19 content, over 6,000 articles and data entries since the start of the pandemic, are freely accessible. 